This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Darren Fenizio. Today is June 16th, 2014. We're conducting this interview at my home in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia. And this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Darren. Hello. Thank you very much for coming out to do the thing. I know you had some reluctance uh, considering you're not always so happy with Philadelphia and maybe not the biggest fan of hardcore. I kind of went through all that, you know. I saw the hardcore mm -hmm. at its very beginnings. I was there at the shows. We'll start uh, with, with young you, because I like to move the interviews kind of through somebody's history. Um, were you born in Ben Salem? No, I was born in West Oak Lane. Okay. Which is um, wherever it's at. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, what year were you born? 1966. Yeah, okay. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what your your, you know, your parents did, what your neighborhood was like growing up, a little bit about you know what the scene was at the time. Uh, I guess growing up, you mean a, a, like, in like West a young, Oak Lane? Yeah, um, or, or yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so um, I guess my dad might have been a hairstylist mm -hmm. at that time, and West Oak Lane was a conglomerations of various culture cultural groups, blacks, well, who all was this Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Polish people, um, <laughs> Italian people. Which would be you, right? Yeah, and the Delicios who live next door to us. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting, you know? It was nice playing like jumping rope with the black girls and spinning tops with the black girls and going to like car races with Joey Okonski and sharing dinner sometimes with the Delicios who shoot her steaks right out. Um, it, was, it was nice and then we made really good friends with um, a couple of survivors of the, um, the Holocaust. Um, what were they like? They were many, well he died, he played harmonica, he looked like one of the Three Musketeers. Yeah, mustache, mustache. Yeah. and he played harmonicas and he had a really good sense of humor and then Loie, his wife um, we've kept in contact she still calls my mom every now and then she, you know, she still got the tattoo yeah, she must be quite old at this point yeah she's right? got a neat neat neat, um, neat accent to her yeah. where did she come out of? I'm guessing Auschwitz okay both of them I mean like what country were they Ah, Polish maybe. Um, guessing they're more. Um, they seemed very like Transylvanian. Like Dracula. Like kind of that kind of area. Yeah. My mind's kind of not doing too well with countries right now. They seem more of like that kind of ethnicity. I guess judging from my experience with different kinds of. Jewish people, like Transylvanian, Romanian. Okay, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Now, tell me about young you. I mean, what were your interests as a, as a kid, uh, you know, growing up? Um, well, I mean, up until like the age of five is so I lived at West Oak Lane. And then um, age six, I was um, in Warminster for like one year at these apartments. And I don't know if my dad was still doing hair. And in 1973, I moved to Ben Salem. I've been there ever since. Mm -hmm. 
what were your interests as a kid? Were you always uh, in love with music? Well, I started playing piano when I was five, um, and I remember singing in front of kids in kindergarten when I was in kindergarten, standing up and doing these these singing performances. And I remember being in fifth grade and playing piano and singing and sticking my hair back and singing doo-wop. And that was part of a gong show. And... Um, Did you get gong? <laughs> yeah, actually. Well, one year, everybody loved me. And I remember... The next year, it was like a go- it was a gong show, and I got gonged. And I had these two guys, Paul and Dan, Daniel Ritecki, and Paul Byback, who were singing harmonies with me, and we got gonged. I, I don't know how good the harmonies were. I know we st- um, in um, seventh and eighth grade, me and Paul used to. Um, I would just play percussion on the tables, and we had all these songs that <clears throat> we wrote that we would sing to the students, like uh, a cappella. Um, and um, I guess it wasn't until ninth grade, my brother, he was taking acoustic guitar lessons at Ben Salem High School and bringing home these sheets, these folk songs, like Blown in the Wind. Mm-hmm. and stuff like that and um, I picked up his guitar and started teaching myself the fingering positions for the open chords and learning how to play the songs and then I think that same year 1980 my brother's friends would come over one of his friends who was this drummer who was like he played everything I know him to this day Lou Aya he plays everything he's a really good musician and he was kind enough to come over with his friend Ken um, and we'd go through Beatles songs and they they like Crosby, Stills and Nash I was forced to play them too you don't like uh, Crosby, Stills? Uh, no, I wasn't big into that but I was into the Beatles songs and I guess I was capable of keeping good time and you know I was I was finding the chords and playing them I remember that was such a problem you know like I worked my way into the bar chords and just kind of like I went with the song and, 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 and kind of like forced my way into timing. Mm-hmm. And within like a couple of years, I learned how to like play in timing. Somebody gave me this album. It was Jimmy Page on the front cover, but it was really a Sonny Boy Williamson album in ninth grade. And so they were playing all these kind of like, that particular Sonny Boy Williamson album with Jimmy Page. It was like all this Bo Diddley type stuff. And so I learned how to play all this stuff you know, ching, 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 ching. there's a man downstairs, maybe your man, I don't know. And I learned how to play all that kind of stuff. So I was like playing that Bo Diddley kind of stuff and playing folk chords and make up my own songs. So when we go over to my brother's friends to watch the wrestling pay-per-views during intermission, I would play these folk songs that I had written. So this is like 81, 82, 83. I remember one song I had was called Four Patrol Cars. It was written about this incident where I'd gone to um, Ben Sam High School to play basketball, and I was shooting hoops by myself. And this poor black kid, he came behind me. He just was playing around. He's like, 
put your hands up. You know, he went to play with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ran all the way down the street and called... I called the local Bantown cops and the poor kid. Did he wind up getting in trouble on that? There was like four patrol cars there. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, been sale. Yeah, so, yeah. So I wrote the song to the Bo Diddley beat. I think I, I actually was ripping off the animals. They had a song called Bo Diddley, which had a Bo Diddley beat, which I was obviously familiar with from the uh, Sonny Boy Williamson album. And, we're, and Bo Diddley is a song where I guess Bo Diddley tells a whole story. I guess Eric Burden was doing the same thing. So I, I was telling my story over to Bo Diddley beat. So I called it Four Patrol Cars. Instead of Bo Diddley, it was Four Patrol Cars. So I was So you think that was the first time that you were really writing a story that was drawn from your life rather than doing you know, somebody else's uh, song? Yeah, yeah. When did you start to think about performing in front of audiences, you know, other than your Well, like I said, I, not too far after I picked up the guitar, I was writing songs and playing for my brother's friends, mm-hmm. and they enjoyed it. So that was the audience there. My, my brother, his friend John Joyan, Gary Black, Jim Price, they would all sit there, and, and they would listen to me play. And there was this big, heavy guy there. He would lift me on top of his head and throw me around and body slam me. He's like a sadistic kind of guy. And John Joyne was a character. My brother's friend. Didn't need any drugs. But they were all doing drugs, but he was straight. But he was the craziest one of them all. Mm-hmm. He just had this weird smile on his face. And he'd go on these very sadistic rampages. And he'd just keep laughing through it all. But he never abused me. It's his friend, big guy, who would abuse me. Mm-hmm. Poor Lou, my Beatles friend, he's, he would get lots of abuse from John. John would chase him around his backyard with his pool cue, chase him around the pool and get him in a shed and start whacking him around. <laughs> and we go back inside and I play more songs for him. When all these folks were doing drugs, were you taking any of the drugs as well? I was totally indifferent. I didn't notice it. Mm-hmm. I didn't even Did notice. Did your brother try to keep that stuff away yeah. from you? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and how how much how many years older uh, than you is he? Three or four. Okay. Three, two, four. Three, three to four years older okay. than me. Right. Um, <clears throat> was there a point where you you began to start to think about doing these bands or, or musical projects in front of larger audiences, you know, beyond your brother's friends, but like to take it into you know a more formal setting like a club or you know a, a dance or something like that? Um, well, I was going to college and. That was like 85, and I was banging on pretzel cans. And I would record that on one tape deck, and I would overdub a, a bass line on a detuned guitar string. And I'd get the tea kettle and put that over it, and I would overdub a, a guitar with three strings. So I used to break my strings all the time. So whatever strings I had, I would just put them out of tune. But I, I was listening to Captain Beefheart and like things like the str- stick men from Philly mm-hmm. who like they seemed like they were pretty just go for it kind of thing and so I just went for it and so I was trying to make music or things that sounded kind of different but kind of musical and I was, so it was very unorthodox and it seems like by 1987 I was writing these songs from a, a guitar that had six strings on it some sound of Buddy Holly ass Others were made from chords that I made up on my own that I still 
plates at his dad. Sometimes I've rewritten words. A lot of chordal voicings I was making, just because I liked the way the shapes looked. It sounded very pretty. And um, I formed a band called Popular Sax in 1987, and we played at Bucks County Community College. And um, what was that band like? Popular Sax was um, it was like kind of like Buddy Holly esque, I guess, and with other things in there that sounded more like um, I guess faster hippie music, and then. Um, it turned into Freedom Quest, where I got another guitar player and wrote a few more songs. And then we, I, I would tell the guitar player to play one thing, and I would play another thing. These were very planned out guitar parts. My whole idea is I wanted to. Say, I really enjoyed Sonic Youth's Bad Moon Rising, and I wanted to make a a version of like Sonic Youth or Live Score or all these New York noise. They call them noise bands, but for some odd reason, I thought it was musical at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shame on me. Um, and I wanted to make something that like old people could listen to, like something your grandparents could listen to that was influenced by that. What would be the qualities that grandparents would like? Because it sounds well, like this is kind of discordant, you know. Well, no. I mean, it was like all tuned up guitars, and it really, it sounds like, it ended up sounding like... Um, Years later, I'd found out about Quicksilver Messenger Service, oh, and I, I, I played an album by I'm like, oh my god, these long instrumentals with songs mixed in, I'm like, actually this sounds pretty much like what I was doing, mm-hmm. like reinventing the wheel, but there's nothing wrong for reinventing the wheels, as long as you don't know what the heck you're influenced by, as long as it's genuine, sincere, I mean, like, it's a baby step up from banging on pretzel cans and playing two notes on a bass. It seems like from the very start here when you start performing in front of people that you're taking a, you know, a peculiar approach. Like you're not doing a straightforward form of like pop music that everybody will like. There's, there are lots of strange elements coming into this. Is that Would you say that that would be true? Well, I guess when we did Popular Sex, I, I guess I had my friend Jeff who would later be the drummer for Muscle Factory. He was playing bass. This, this really crazy guy, Jim, on drums. Who most of the practice, I would sit and watch Jeff and J- Jeff and Jim do these drum things, where they would just go off playing all these polyrhythmic drum things. They were really intellectual guys, and Jeff was doing this really cerebral, really crazy, good, abstract art. And Jim had made tapes at home. He's a drummer, but he was making a lot of tapes at home. He would get all these intellectual dissertions I, and it was, it was kind of a, bit, a lot of it beyond me so it would come time to do my songs and we'd practice our band and we went to the studio I paid for and made a four track recording and Jim left so we got my friend Joe Mohawk to play drums for us and that's when it turned into Freedom Quest J- Joe Mohawk was a guy I went to high school with he was a year below me but he was in my philosophy class and I jammed with his parents all the time. You probably see him in a documentary. If you see me playing bass and you see these two older people mm-hmm. where the woman's reciting poetry, yeah, yeah. that's his parents. Oh, okay. So I used to play with them all the time. I'd and his parents and, were on board with you know, doing this musical project with you? you know, well, no, they song. were into jamming with me. I would mainly jam with the father. His father would you know, smoke the homegrown. And I was, again, I was oblivious to it because mm-hmm. I was totally, I didn't do anything. And I would go there and jam with him. And that particular video was um, us jamming actually with his, him and his wife. His wife was reading poetry she had written, 
and um, we made a video of it. And that would be a, a common thing back in the early 90s where I'd be over there jamming with Joe Mohawk's parents and Joe would be like, well, I'm ready, <laughs> going to go see FOS and SOD and all these kind of bands. I'm going, you know, his friends, his hardcore friends would come over and they'd have their, their leather jackets on. And I was already over that that whole thing. You did then. have some experience with punk, right? I mean, I remember... Well, before the, that, that was like the second string. I guess it's 85. So I was going to those shows in like... Let me see, my first show was 83. So I saw Husker do... My first live band that I ever saw in my whole life was Circle of Shit now, with Brubaker. So I, we should talk about this for a second because it's a subject that comes up, you know, the, the Hate Edge and, and that band. Did you know Brubaker or did you come to know him? I ended up getting to know him from um, the Pennsylvania State Fair. Like years later, I'd see him walk around and be like, yo, Brubaker, you know, and he wasn't exactly friendly with me. You know, it's like, you know, some punk rock people were really people who um, were genuinely open-minded and and nice. Other ones were people who maybe may not have been that that bright, who um, were there because strictly for the identity fulfillment of it, mm -hmm. maybe. And, um, you know, I, I used to go to these shows and I would I remember seeing Electric Love Muffin, who are a Philly band who play a lot in these gigs, with Rich Kaufman mm -hmm. and his brother Frank, I believe, on drums. Oh, I might be getting mixed up. Maybe it's Brian on bass with Rich Kaufman and Brian's brother on drums, Frank, who s seemed like, um, let me see, this is like 83, 84, they were doing all this power, pop, punk stuff, which is not my particular kind of music, but I know like li bands later on would later make lots of money doing this kind of music and they, they really didn't fit in with those shows I remember when they played they, they kind of stuck, stood out because they'd come on with these pairs, these shirts but you know this was at uh, say like the Love Club Love yeah. Club and mm -hmm. places like that okay uh, what did you think of Circle of Shit when you saw them? Uh, it was my first band that I ever saw live so I remember seeing Brubaker up there with this big mohawk and you know, like people were throwing stuff at him. It's like this band, little gentleman. I, I never seen him play, and it's like it's like the hardcores even kind of thought they were goofy, and they'd throw stuff at them. People make fun of them and throw stuff at them. And they would just be with their Doc Martens on, kicking people, and people jumping off the balconies. I remember that first show. Was that, I remember a girl jumping off the balcony, and um, an ambulance had come to pick her up because she was like on the floor with like chicken soup dripping out of her mouth <laughs> all over the floor and people were just I just remember thinking wow this is like really violent and it was bringing all these kind of visions of apocalypse to me at my tender age of like 17 or whatever it doesn't seem like it, would be, it was that appealing to you but I guess you did continue to go to, to some of the shows for a while then, right? well no I mean that same show the Minutemen played and Husker Du played so I saw Husker Du go up and I'm like Oh, these don't look like hardcore. They look like normal guys. And they went up there and they were just like, you know, real fast music. Because before they, they, they were, um, they put out stuff that was more subdued. But, you know, like Everything Falls Apart had some really good songs on it. And Metal Circus had some really good songs on it. Mixed in with the, you know, which was, who wants to listen to that now? 
you know, really, does that music survive? No, it doesn't. And that's really their best stuff on those two EPs, the slower, more melodic stuff like Diane and all that. By the time they made Zen Arcade, it's like it wasn't produced all that well. I don't know why we make such a big deal about that. They made a big deal about it. I think what happened is like hardcore and hardcore punk, they were so kind of fixed on this kind of... Um, very kind of simplistic definition of what was hardcore music that, you know, when somebody did something like that, Roy was like, whoa, this is different, you know? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was pushing the boundaries of their, their style and they reacted to it. It was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. Undercade is a masterpiece. And, every, and, and uh, New Day Rising is a masterpiece. And I was like, hmm, sounds a little light in the ideas to me. And, what made the songs on those first two um, Husker Du EP so good was there was a lot of syncopation going on and the recordings were good, which they sounded really good. And I think they, they lost that by the time they made Zen Arcade, in my humble opinion. And then, so I saw the Minutemen um, on that same show and they came out. I remember the guitar player broke his guitar. <laughs> he was jumping around his guitar and he broke over, literally broke over his stomach after the first two songs and the, the whole gig of just bass and drums. I do remember that. They pulled it off though? Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is, these guys are hardcore? That's not like weird funk. Did me. the audience react well to them? Were they into it? Yeah. Yeah, they were. They were into it. So, um, that was the first hardcore show of, the first of many that I went to. I saw a lot of them. Were any of the bands that you saw at that time, that, that any of them stick out now, you know, that you have fond recollections of? Well, I remember being at Penn University and I saw a hardcore band named Graven Image. And I remember talking to the lead singer, because he looked like my cousin Mark from the Marines. I'm like, yeah, man, you must work out a lot. It must be a real workout doing those songs. <laughs> it's like, I guess I was like trying to get into hardcore, mm-hmm. but the Dead Milkman played after them, and I heard them on WKDU, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. It reminds me of like Red Crayola's second album. But then I saw them live, and I was like, yeah, it was just okay. It was joke music. I was never big into joke music. Mm-hmm. And then the Sun City Girls came on. That's where I really wanted to see because I saw a picture of Maximum Rock and Roll, the Sun City Girl, these guys at these Indian Madras hung over them, and I was like, ah, what's that all about? And I found out what that was all about. That what, was crazy. What, what did, yeah, what did you think of their performance? I remember the, the lead singer for the Dead Milkman was like on his knees, he's like praising to them. <laughs> I remember they came out, and the, the drummer was on um, the drummer from um, Mighty Stinkter because their drummer had canceled out on the tour. So they were using the drummer from Buddy Stinker, and he had all these crazy things around his neck and very voodoo-like, just like real blonde hair and a tan and palm trees on either side of him. And um, I remember this guy coming out, like this top hat and a cigar. He's like, I'm Uncle Jim. And he's smoking a cigar. And before you know it, they were just like throwing equipment around, destroying things. You know, and doing little excerpts of Middle Eastern music, and I was like, 
oh, cool. I got to go out and crazy buy. scene. Yeah, then. it was crazy. I'm like, that was cool. I got to buy their album. So I bought their album. That was 1984. I bought their first album, and I listened to it all the time. And it really, you know, being the age I was and growing up in that generation, turned me on to a lot of different things, like jazz, like certain ethnic musics. Um, um, yeah, prog rock in there. <laughs> um, prog rock, no, it's never one of my big things. But I guess um, in 1991, I formed this band called Paraplegic, and I guess I was writing prog rock. So I sat down with my friend Jack, and we we were on the beach writing these. I guess medleys and it was him taking the character of a paraplegic and um, we presented it these heavy metal dudes that we knew that we had, we had previously done these studio recordings called Casket where him, my friend Bill Wyman like guy had to kind of like qualify himself to be in it it was kind of that's why we formed it so we can ostracize him from it the poor guy. What was the concept behind uh, the Casket band? Casket was we were going to do heavy metal, like kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, death metal. I was programming drum mach- I was really good at programming drum machines because I had done a lot of it. So there's for- no thought of having a, a live drummer on that one? Yeah. Is it no, we did it in Phil- my friend Phil's apartment. And I was programming this drum machine. I would spend hours. Those guys would be smoking pot. And again, I was oblivious. I didn't realize they were in smoking pot because I was straight. And um, were you straight by by decision? I mean, you, you know, you determined that you were not going to do these things when people were doing. Yeah, them and as a result, I didn't even realize they were doing them. Right. My mind was, I would be there with my hand, my eyes on the this little um, doctor rhythm screen, you know, tapping in rhythms and and. Uh, making these songs and it took a lot of work mm-hmm. but I knew it's like well you, you want to get good results you have to work for it and you know so I was doing the I was probably doing a lot of the work you know and um, it worked out because we we drilled through the songs and I was playing guitar and I was coming to parts and they put me through a big amplifier and I guess I, I got a pretty good metal tone and I had enough inspiration to I mean, you listen to it now, the performances sound good, but I think I pretty much just started to learn a major scale. It doesn't sound much different than the way I play now. Um, and this band was never meant to perform live? No. It was just meant to be a recording? No. So Phil, you know, who me and Jack had done this band The Eggs with, who was also, which was also a studio project, like picture Jim Morrison meets the Beatles. Um, Phil was very, very, um, let's just say he was very grounded on the bass. He, it worked for the studio recordings, but to make a long story short, <clears throat> I ended up taking up the bass and we let my friend Bill Wyman, who had participated in the last few casket recordings, last couple casket recordings, we let him come in as a guitar player for Paraplegic. So I was a bass player, he was the guitar player, and his brother who was like the virtuoso on drums, you know, um, at least in the sense that he could play exactly like Neil Peart from Rush, he was playing. So yeah, you know, 
before I met these metal dudes, the idea of sitting around and practicing scales or even learning the scales was like something I never conceived of. And I was always one that I was into widening my palate. And um, so I, as, they, as people would sit around bullshitting, I would do the same thing. I'd have my guitar in my hand and I'd be like practicing the scales, threes, fours, fives. I'm like, you know, you gotta grow as a musician or else you're gonna, you're gonna just not go anywhere. So uh, yeah, so um, between that and like, like I said, when I was doing popular sex, when I started making demos for Freedom Quest with the tape decks, I, um, I was copying off my friend Jeff his, the way he would play bass, the way he would make pop bass lines. So it gave me an idea of how to use the major scale to make pop bass lines and how to make good pop bass lines. And so doing the, um, the heavy metal thing was no problem because it was more a matter of having um, a lot of um, endurance. And my timing wasn't a problem. The only thing is I, I, um, I had to put down the pick so I figured I want to do this the right way. <laughs> if the girl from Rat at Rat R can do it the right way, so can I. Were the metalheads all on board with this sort of high concept of the paraplegic band? Oh yeah, because they heard in a, they heard me playing acoustic guitar on the beach with Jack. They heard the music and they were like, "Yeah, this is cool." They worshipped Jack because to him he was like Jim Moore. To them he was like Jim Moore. So. Mm -hmm. And you performed this live at some point. Uh, we we played play? at a couple sports bars in Ben Sound. How did they go over? Oh, people loved it. There was these metalheads there. A couple who I recognized from high school from being in my music major classes, you know, and they would see this guy with his like blonde Beatles haircut sitting there, locking himself in the room with the piano playing, you know, Sun Ra, free jazz music. This is high school. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I got that from. Because that was before I discovered the Sun City Girls. I guess um, I got that from somewhere. Maybe I discovered it on my own. Maybe I discovered that like I like putting my hands on the piano and just playing. And um, I had a natural sense of harmony and things worked out. So I, I did that a lot in high school. I just locked myself in the room during the music classes and improvise. Um, classical jazz music on the piano and um, and you know these, these metal dudes be behind snickering at me we never talked never got along but we had a great teacher Mr. Kutchler and he was great he was a classical conductor and he managed to get everybody on the same page like musically he knew how to get the, um, the metal heads people like me all the people who were in musicals he got them all singing the keyboard. It's called solfeggio, where you get everybody to sing the chords and get everybody to sing the notes and the intervals mm -hmm. and what an interval sounds like, what, what a minor chord sounds like and what a major chord sounds like. And he would give examples of popular music. And look what happens, I play a minor instead of a major. It sounds a little funny. Okay, now Barry, you're, what, you're in a metal band? Okay, well if you play for your band, right, okay, what if a guy hits that chord and it's, a, it's one step off, right? The music you play, it's a lot of half steps involved, so you'd be off, wouldn't you? You know, so he pulled he pull everybody in and he got us all to sing together. And um, that's when I learned how to play chords 
on a piano, like in a technical, the um, correct kind of way, because I've been playing piano since I was five, so now I'm 13 or 14, and now I'm learning, okay, this is how you make a major chord, minor chord, sixth chord, seventh chord, major seventh chord, diminished. I learn all the chords, and then I start te teaching myself all the, um, the um, ways that you can play that chord. What do you call them? Inversions. I start teaching myself that, and they would force us to write these little um, four-part pieces of classical music that used... Um, Oh, I forgot what you call it. When you have different instruments playing different parts, contrapuntal, counterpoint. So, you know, I had to learn how to read music for those couple years anyway, and write, write that and get an idea about that. So, between that and like, you know, middle school and elementary school, the kind of music that they were exposing us to. I remember being in elementary school and they were forcing us to learn you know, I'm leaving on a jet plane and the boxer mm -hmm. by Simon Garfunkel and all sorts of obscure Celtic numbers. We work all day putting sugar in our tea, you know. They made us learn all these folk songs in fifth grade and songs from musicals. Um, I forget what musical it would be. If it would be Carousel or one of them. When you feel bad, do 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 your prospects are bad, do 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 your men are worse, your wife is dying, crying, and your is dying. So they would have us singing all these these kind of strange songs when we were only in fifth grade, and in sixth and seventh grade, you know, our teacher was throwing. Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Weather Report and all this this stuff at us. So you were getting a pretty heady bitches brew from you know from the, these uh, the teachers then. Mm -hmm. um, how are you getting along with the kids in general? You know, going through school. Um, I think it was good until high school. High school seemed to be um, a different kind of thing. It was kind of post-bullying, but towards the end it was like um, at the beginning of racial fights erupting. You know, I say post-bullying because there wasn't any football players beating up people like me. You know, I'd walk up. In Did you hall. have problems with that earlier, you know, in, in younger? No, nah, nah. nobody got bullied in the 70s and the early 80s, which was a continuation of the 70s. Up until the year I graduated, 84, that was the 70s. So, yeah, I would say hi to the basketball players. I would even put on performances in the hallway. Every, in the dark, there was like two parts of the second floor. One was dark. I'd always go to the dark part, and I'd bring a little black sambo and I would start reading it, and all the football players and all the goofy nerds and uh, goofy teachers would show up. They'd all surround me. And I'd start reading Little Black Samo, and they would all jump on me, and they'd start like beating me up, making me pretend to beat me up. 
So that went on like in like ninth and tenth grade. Why, why did you select the little black sandal? I have I mean, no <laughs> idea. Probably so. Probably because my my uncle was in the bookbinding business and he gave it to us and it was there. Why I selected it, I don't know. It's like you know, there's a lot of subconscious kind of stuff going on. Probably to this day, it's like my dreams. I had these dreams, like one I had last night. It was. It was bizarre. It was something I could never think of. You know it comes from somewhere else because I could never think of all this craziness. Mickey Rooney and Kiss and um, Michael Gere from the Swans sitting in a bathtub with a shower curtain getting interviewed by a friend Art Girl and going in this little chapel and everybody pissing around Michael uh, Magic Johnson's blood. Sounds like a dangerous prospect. Sitting, sitting in, uh, sitting in pews. There's a lot of stuff going on like that. I hope these are dreams I have every night. These very futuristic kind of dreams that if I would copy them down, they probably wouldn't sound all that much different from some of those Bob Dylan songs, the ones I say I really don't care to sit through. From, you know, from um, Highway 61 and albums like that. Yeah, sort of poetic stream of conscious. Um, using popular core figures. Yeah, it's, these been, especially for the past couple of years, showing up my dreams, all these different um, movie stars and core figures from different generations showing up in these kind of very um, strange futuristic situations where there seems to be a lapse of um, morality and, and a lot of tr drugs and sex. And yeah, it seemed like it seems like maybe stuff like Burroughs was writing or something like mm -hmm. that. It seems like that put into a dream, very visual form. And I'm always just like a spirit a lot of times floating through this. It must be interesting being around all these different personalities, you know, engaging in all manner of peculiar behavior. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's go back. You mentioned that towards the latter part of your time in high school, there were racial tensions. What What was that all about? Well, I guess um, I, all I remember about that is maybe there was a couple kids who were into hardcore. So this is when I first started going to punk rock shows, 83, 84. Yeah, it was just the same time of the year. These weren't kids I saw at hardcore shows. These were kids that you maybe see at Ben Salem hardcore shows, like really small time stuff. Mm -hmm. So they weren't coming into the city, you know? They didn't no, they were more listening to rap. They would bring like a boombox and listen to rap. And somehow they may have been connected to these racial riots that we were having at our school. Which was so this was a white and black Yeah, thing. white and black. Right. And did this affect you in some way when this was happening? Um... I was kind of in my own little world, and I was reading a lot of like um, Burroughs, and Ginsberg, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Gregory Corso, and trying to understand it, and writing my own poetry. So in a lot of, <laughs> practically every class, I was sitting down writing poetry, and um, so I was kind of oblivious to a lot of it all. Now, you said you were reading these, these beat writers, uh, and so far in our narrative, you've stayed away from drugs. Was there a point where you began to, uh, you know, look into drugs or experiment with them? Was it ever something that became, you know, somewhat interesting to you? Maybe around 1990, 
1993-ish, mm-hmm. my friend Satan, Satan at large, um, what, what is the, uh, Luperfidia, he was part of the hardcore scene, my brother, okay. but he had, um, he had some pretty radical thoughts, he was really over the top kind of guy, he had a drinking problem, he died a couple years ago, I actually formed a band with him while he's dying called Corpse. <laughs> that to facilitate the process of him becoming one? Well, he actually almost died, and he got revived. What, what was he I dying su- of? Um, Killed by death? I don't know. I didn't know he had this big hole on his body. And and a big what on his body? This big... Um, I forgot what you call them. I had one on my leg, but it was caused from a spider bite. You know, they got to they got to clean it out. Okay, so he had some some form of infection. He had an infection, but then what was really killing him? Well, maybe he had a heart attack. It's hard to say. Okay. All I know is he was dying. And I saw this tape of him and me in my basement. It was around Christmas time, and um, I would. It seems like the way we worked together back, even in like eighty. 88 when we were doing Satan at Large. This is now 2005. We were doing Corpse. It was the same way. I would come up with the titles of the songs and then he would come up with the lyrics. Um, and it was funny, in 87 when we were doing Satan at Large, he would um, he didn't bother writing the lyrics. He had the I guess he had the cockiness to just go up on stage and just he would just recite the title and I would be playing like rap drums or something and then I had my friend Phil and Jack you know the singer from Paraplegic he was like taking acid and playing like a couple notes on bass and I was playing like rap drums and Phil was making a bunch of noises on his his Yamaha keyboards through millions of effects and then he would be there dressed up in his Satan album with the horns so we had a song called Give the, Give the Gift of Aids. He would be up there, you know, Give the Gift of Aids, I want you, honey. Give the Gift of Aids, I want you, honey. I got AIDS. He would just scream it. I got AIDS. So it was very much like from here. We were like, the, the lyrics were very oblique, and he. How do people react to that? I mean, I imagine that that's, you know, it's somewhat sensitive a subject for, for some well, people. Well, again, I was 87, so I guess rap was pretty new. And I guess I was kind of cha- channeling what I knew about rap, just that feel. I didn't listen to rap, but I guess I was exposed to it nevertheless. So, like, I, I knew, like, yeah, you know, I just had my finger on the bass and drum on the end, this little tiny calculator thing. And I'd be like, so yeah, I would just do that, and then Jack, I was like, if I keep doing that, Jack's gonna come up with something on bass because he seems to have a pretty good art sense, even though his dad was like feeding him acid since he was like ten. Well, where did the drugs then come in for you? I mean, that's what you're trying to get. Well, at. that's 1993, right. and I was around the time I was doing Hoppy the Frog. I guess I started doing Hoppy the Frog. So this is after Saint Large slash the Corpse gave me my first smoke of pot, and this is at Bigfoot's house. Bigfoot, Bigfoot was like a moving force in the hardcore scene. His real name's Dave Brookman, and um, 
Yeah, this actually happened in his living room while he was trying to get some sleep. Satan at large was kind of like living on his couch, smelling up the whole couch. And, Stinky uh, guy. Yeah. And he gave me my first um, try. I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to do it right. So I smoked the joint. I held it in for a long time. And I, I don't know, he was putting on different things. Like he put on that Pink Floyd album, Source of Foral Secrets. Great record. And there was these two speakers and... I never like, oh, wow, I was listening to Stereofax. I was like, oh, I never really experienced stereo that way before. Mm-hmm. It was a big novelty. I mean, I just remember his hand, he's like, Satan was going up and down with his hand. He's like, corporal, like he was doing it. And I was watching his hand, like it was moving in slow motion. And I was just like ahead, like, you know, my body was real far away from me. My so it body, sounds like it was a pretty pleasant experience for you then. Um, yeah, it was pretty um, out there. Uh, um, so I never, I remember that, and um, and I would go over to Bigfoot's, Sans Lo, <laughs> and he, you know, Sans Lu slash Satan slash Corpse would be gone, and 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 then um, he would play things, you know, music he liked, like the Sparks or, wrote some early Alice Cooper, you know, he would play different things, and. Um, I'd be like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And since he was getting into a lot of later, a little bit later, like dance music, dance stuff um, that he was playing for me. And I'd just be dancing because I was like so out there. You know, I was just, again, I was like a head and I had a body. I'm like, well, I might as well just like dance because if I sit down, I'm just going to be like a vegetable. And I'm probably not going to like myself for it. So I might as well get exercise while he's playing his music for me mm-hmm. that obviously seems designed for dancing and yeah. I'd be like dancing he's like so Darren what do you think of this what do you think what do you think there's like two, Front 242 or some less obvious bands and I'm like oh it's, this is the greatest music in the world <laughs> yeah man this is the greatest <laughs> music in the world and I remember he'd invite this girl over she had a crew cut and she'd be sitting in there he'd be a, kind of playing these well, it's interesting games with her. I'll just put it that way. So psychological games, male domination kind of games. He's dominating her, and, and she she was like she was like, even though she had a crew cut, she started dance with me, and her arms would be all free. She had like she was like a deadhead who was like gone hardcore. Maybe she was confused, and so yeah, so he he would do this kind of stuff with her. But then she'd get up and dance with me, and I remember dancing with her, and he put on Moby Grape. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And I'd be dancing with her. I'm like, she's like, this is great. And she'd show up at my, I remember doing a gig at the Barbary's Hobby the Frog. And I'd be sitting around. We'd be watching some, like, Feasterville cover band up there wearing blonde heavy metal wigs to their chest, waiting to go on. My friend had Wilcox, who's this free jazz drummer from West Philly. He'd be there being... This is the mating music of Fishtown, they're playing. And I was looking at him like, what? You know? And um, I remember it was like, it's time for us to go on, and we played. And I remember a circle of drunk, like Fishtown locals. They were all standing around in a circle. And um, they were watching us. And I guess them combined with this, like, kind of like heavy metal mating band people who had come to see them were standing around there they were all really really drunk because it was Irish 
what do you call St. Paddy's Day. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, St. Paddy's Day. <laughs> that would be the time. And um, I never, <laughs> towards the end, the guy who's doing the door, this big grizzly man, he's like, can I take the mic away from him? He's like, oh, okay, everybody. <laughs> and I'd give it to the guy, and he'd be like, yo, it's last call, so everybody wants a drink, go and get it now. And he gave it back to me, and I'd shove the, the mic back into my, 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 my frog mouth. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, everybody, last drink, so I guess we could only do one more song, you know? And what do the, the yahoos from Fishtown think of Hoppy? They were just watching it. They weren't... Hoppy's uh, green, at least. No, it was good, and, and the band was extra good. That was, you know, by far the best thing, thing like, musically I've ever done. We like, should talk... Live. Yeah, we should talk... I mean, for those who don't aren't familiar with Hoppy the Frog, you should explain, you know, where did Hoppy come from? What was the idea behind Hoppy the Frog? Um, and where is Hoppy now? Well, the frog said it's still my crawl space. With, with the um, the whole outfit. Where where did this outfit come from? Well, the head. You know, my friend Phil, bass player for Casket and member of the Ags. Um, he was in the Mummers band because he got rid of all of his electric instruments. I guess he figured. That's so far an electric instrument is going to sell them all and become a mummer. Mummers, dude. I listened to the incredible string band. So, um, he had this one concept he must have had one year for the um, string band he was in. Was that they had like all these guys just like frogs. Mm-hmm. And he, I guess Phil had to dress up in an alpha. So I looked in his closet and he had this frog's head. I'm like, we say I guess I hadn't done any gimmick bands at that point. Um, I might have made the Muscle Factory concept cassette prior to that, maybe. Yeah, I'd like to talk about them too. I guess so, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Hoppy now and then move on to. So uh, Hoppy was probably written after Muscle Factory, although the band came with the Muscle Factory band came much later. So yeah, um, I'm thinking. Well, I was. In, I guess I was obviously in the concepts that time since I had rewritten the Muscle Factory tape. So I'm like, um, oh, okay, I can write children's music. I guess I listen to a lot of '60s music, and a lot of that music seems like children's music. So I'll just and and Phil, who had written um, to his great credit, I saw like I'm not making a big deal about him as a musician wrote all these really cool simple chord progressions for the eggs you know um, which was the band again I was doing in 1987 um, which was a studio only band um, so he made he these very simple chord progressions that were you know very childlike and very simple and made just a really kind of cool use out of ma- um, just major chords really so I was like, oh, all right, well, I'll do some of that and build on it. And I'll, I'll do other kinds of things where I use major and minor chords, which I've been doing in Popular Sex and Freedom Quest. So, and, I, and I'll, I'll put it on this, this um, Hobby the Frog concept. So I'll also use um, layerings of sound, which I guess I learned a lot of that from um, Fire Sign Theater. Order Mother Invention. Um, 
but Fireside Theater were better. Better than um, others. Well, yeah, I mean, at like, um, you knew if you listened to their albums over and over again that something was going on. It was really well done in terms of the um, the way all the equalizations of the voices were done and the placement and everything to give you the, those levels of consciousness. Whereas the Frank Zappa album were more like ego fest. I got I just recently got rid of my Frank Zappa albums. I'm like, man, there's just some good music on it, but most of it, yeah. His whole his whole attitude towards music is not something I find to be very noble. Anyway, so Hoppy, uh, what were the, what were you trying to do with? So the anyway, um, yeah, I was writing the studio tapes, which were these stories that I was telling, and you have parts where you have. Um, various things going on with musical background and maybe people speaking in the right speaker and left speaker, you know, mixed in with these songs, which I guess the songs were um, kind of like psychedelic jug band, progressive jug band music, which really probably wasn't that much different than like things the Loving Spoonful were writing, mm -hmm. mixed in with other things which were more interesting. That probably end up sounding. I know my friend Ed Wilcox would be like, "Yeah, man, you was really like Spirit. <laughs> you got that one from Spirit, right?" Like I have no idea who Spirit are. And again, Spirit, like Quicksilver Messenger Service, were a very jazz-influenced band, even more so. So I guess I was going into this realms of jazz um, un unintentionally, obviously, because I wasn't really aware of all this stuff. But you are dressed as a giant green frock with a giant head. I mean, oh, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was on stage, I had to sing this, um, take on the character of the frog. So it wasn't about, in the studio, I was making the stuff and layering the instruments. It was very heady stuff because like, I had to play all the instruments and mix this all down. But, you know, so it was a matter of giving it to friends and the friends would listen to it and they would learn their parts. And they, they knew for the spoken parts, they're like, so what, should we play what you're playing? I'm like, kinda. Or sometimes I'd be like, no, just play whatever you want. Just I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm kind of playing, you know that song we did earlier? I'm kind of, I slowed it down, I'm playing that in the background. Why don't you do that and keep, mine keep that, it's probably good. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's a good idea. And then the arrangements um, were early on, I was, I was really still into programming the drum machine, so it was just me and a keyboard player was this virtuoso who took too much acid, but he knew how to play Chopin, who was in the band. And I programmed these really cool drum parts for each song. And my friend, Art Girl, I would have these very specific phasing settings set in a phaser box. So each song, she would have to set the phaser at a different rate or wherever to uh, make the drum parts do different things um, physically that you, the person, the audience would feel it. And my friend John was playing like bass lines on his Korg and he was playing um, other kinds of things on a CZ-101, which was the uh, Cassia synthesizer that you hear in a lot of my music, which I played, which he happened to have, and he was really good at like making sounds on it. He could make trucks passing by, and he could just play, you know, make sounds that would interact with how he was playing. A lot of things that he he knew that when he was playing 
would make the music sound more out there and more abstract. And it took me years to appreciate really what he was doing. And then quickly after we added Hoagie on the banjo. So I added Hoagie who, how did I meet him? I guess I must have met him through the um, jams at the Greek restaurant there on Chestnut and Second. Um, and he would go up there, but we'd all be plugged into this old stereo. Greek musicians, reggae musicians, rock musicians, all sorts of people plugged into this old 70s piece of wood. And we play. So I met I met Hoagie from there. So he he joined Hobby the Frog. He's a percussionist. He played dumbback, but he was playing dumbback and banjo, an electrified banjo, and Hobby the Frog. And so it was me, him, and John the Virtuoso, and the crazy keyboards and the drum machine and Art Girl, who also played a part of Miss Duck. And to make a long story short, that kind of got changed when I added. Mark Bucow, who was this New Jersey musician I met through this girl I met and went out, this woman, woman I met at a metal club near me, who was a New Jersey dude, who was a real top-notch um, kind of cover band slash singer-songwriter type musician, could play everything, really good, good musician in a straight musical sense. And we had Ed Wilcox, who was, you know, he was hardcore because he was just like, he was in his own little world. When I saw him with his band, Tobin he was like pretty much just playing free jazz drums. But somehow, in Hoppy the Frog, he put like a little xylophone on top of this big giant circus drum that he had wrapped around his neck. And the guy had back problems to begin with. But this is how committed to the project he was. This big circus drummer of a xylophone, and I, maybe he had a cymbal. Maybe he didn't. I didn't remember. Yeah, I guess he had a cymbal attached to. So anyway, he'd be dancing around this thing, with the mallet on the bass drum hitting the xylophone. So that with Hoagie and Mark Bucco on bass and the virtuoso on keyboards, and the drum machine, we got this really amazing sound. It was the best of everything. It was everybody come together? The only problem was the virtuoso kind of was getting a thing for Mark, who was playing bass, and it was hard for him to get through the practices. He, you know, because when he was smoking pot, his true feelings would come out. No, so he, he had a crush on him. Yeah, yeah. And, so and, and um, take it, the crush was not reciprocated. Mark had a sense of humor about it. No, Mark didn't care because right. he was he was a, he was a real acid head at the time. At the time, okay, or he was he had been through it and he he did, did lots of things. He was out there, and so he just thought it was funny. He he was a cool guy. He knew how to loosen up and he knew how to go from being a professional musician and just loosen up and space now. And you'd have people like Ed Wilcox who were like free jazz guys who were learning to come in. He was actually playing. And it wasn't until we did like the studio recordings and I heard him really well recorded. I heard what he was doing. I was like, oh wow. He really gave a lot of himself to come in and actually play more conventionally. And he's 
that's awesome what he's doing. He's jumping around. What he's doing was better than what I was doing. But do you think that when you come out dressed as a giant frog, that whatever levels of complexity that, that are inherent in the music, kind of people aren't going to pay as much attention to it because they're going to see you, know, you as a frog? Well, no, they heard what was coming out of me. What right. was coming out of me was really good. So I was really spaced out. So I was doing all these crazy things. You know, when we were at the peak, when um, the virtuoso left the keyboards and the bass player, Mark Bucot, he took over on keyboards. He really committed himself to this. You know, he put himself in the stupor and like learned all the songs in one night. He learned how to play it on piano. And he, he had different sounds that he would use for each song. And it was, he had a really, you know, professional keyboard. And that's what he was doing all of his stuff on. And so the bass player became Frank, who was a friend of Ed Wilcox. He was a punk rock bass player. And he came in. But he was able to, I guess he liked the Velvet Underground, so he was thinking of playing bass like that. But really, he was more like, he, he knew how to write like um, bass lines that you might have heard in like, you know, the Archies or the Monkees. In other words, stuff that I was learning to play in 1989. Pop, really good pop bass. He was, you know, playing, he played with a lot of full body there in the bottom. So Ed was playing with his big circus drum, so it had that bottom kick in with. What Ed was playing on the xylophone and Mark's keyboards and the banjo. We would practice at Mark's place, Mark Bucot. We would practice at his place in New Jersey, and his kids would be crawling around on the ground as we were playing these songs. And it was so beautiful because we were all, you know, smoking and we were all really having the time of our lives. And they would fight out the arrangements or they would work out the arrangements. And I stood them just watch them do it because I figured they're my songs they got the, I mean what can you really do except make these songs better because I knew my songs were very left brain I, 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 I calculatingly wrote them and, and so they were able to flesh them out and like later on me and Mark Bucot wrote songs together and that was interesting because he had this very you know top 40 way of looking at things you know and he went the right like Write a song called Frogs Make Special Friends Come Out at Night You know it's Stuff like it was more commercial than I would ever think of writing And then I would maybe put in like a, um, a waltz in the middle So like that'll make it more interesting And we'll go round and round on the carousel You know And so it was like uh, written by Darren and Mark and I would I would try to you know comment different I was kind of copying off my Jack my fr friend Jack from the eggs where he would come in in opportune moments instead of coming in where you think you should and leaving parts out which is it's funny you hear that you know I guess on that forever changes almost we were talking about you know where he he doesn't sing sometimes I guess Jack was doing that and Jack probably never heard of love again when people are experimenting, they tend to mimic things that people had previously experimented with, which is good, because part of doing art is synthesis, that you take things and you carry them on and you, you cut them up and you mix them up, and especially when you don't know you're doing it anyway, you know, it's good, because certain things just survive at the ages. In Chinese cooking, 
They have recipes that go down for millions and millions of years. Why? Because those combinations and those ingredients work well together. You know? Mm -hmm. So Hoppy went over fairly well with audiences, right? I mean, you Oh, nobody disliked it ever. Can I get some more water? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, let me ask you a question, then I'll just run off what you're right. doing. Uh, but, uh, well, then what led to the... Uh, you can have that, too. But <laughs> what, what led to the demise of uh, Hoppy? Um, what led to the demise of Hoppy was this dude with a ponytail who looked like a, a muscular Three Musketeers dude. Uh-huh. And his black girlfriend, who was like go, ready, like she was competition quality. Com- they, she, what, she what, dra- you, what does that mean? That means she was like really working out hard. Okay. He was just like kind of working out. He was just naturally big dude, strapping dude, did put rugs in. And she dragged him to see Hoppy the Frog. So he saw me do it, and this was like Hoppy Frog at its peak. Which, what year would that be? That, that would be 1980, 19, I'm sorry, 1995, 1994, 1995. And so um, they saw us, and we performed at this little place. It um, was like off a of second and market somewhere on Bank Street. Patrice, this girl in the bar. It would later be called the Five Spot. But at the time, it was called, um, oh, I should be ashamed of myself. This is not very good at names. No, it doesn't matter. But, but anyway, yeah. it will probably come to me as I'm talking. We used to play at this place a lot. It was really nice. Patrice ran it. She did the bar. And um, sometimes Happy the Frog would play a heavy metal band. I remember, you know, one time we... We had this whole group of heavy, heavy metal people sitting down Indian style on the ground. And, and, you know, Hoagie would play this opening song for me on his banjo with the band. You know, I forget how he did it or what it was. It was, it was more of like a real even commercial song. And I would crawl out in between everybody from the audience and... Hmm, I probably subconsciously got that from Vasco because I think he was doing that at one point with Rowan where he would come out dressed up like a rabbit or imitating a rabbit for a white, white rabbit, which they covered. Are you a fan of Rowan? Rowan? I saw them many times. And yeah, there were songs they had that I, I really liked on the first album. I just remember the second album was like, you know, was that 80s production, and which didn't appeal to me even back then. And it was just like, the songs um, didn't seem as inspired. You had a lot of groups like that, that put out albums that um, were really inspired. And maybe it would go over a lot of people's heads. That happened a lot. You know, like Sacker and Trust put out Surviving You Always, which was like a work of art. And Rat at Rat Art put um, Rock is Dead or something like that. That was like their album. They were guys who migrated from Philly in 85. They put it, or not 85, put out this really great album. I guess it, I mean, 85 was the same year Sonic Youth put out their album, The Bad Moon Rising, which was great. And then um, 1987, Sonic Youth put out Sister, which was really brilliant. 
and then um well, we should probably get i mean i don't want to veer too far off course and you know we're gonna i'm just trying to time, explain that all these things in 89 the group called live school put out as a track positive traction all these things i think were uh, an extension of 60s music and you're talking about hobby the frog and i see happy the frog as another extension of, of 60s music that kind of spirit that kind of musicality and that level of idealism and um, I invited these two people from the gym which, which I already told you about um, and and he's he was a guy who put down rugs and he saw us and he came to me after the gig and he's like Darren I was really moved I was moved to tears but by Hoppy the Frog because you you got that one part in the story where you're inside of the Burger King container and you can't get out and kids are poking holes into it and it, it made me think about a part of my youth and he's going through this whole thing he's like he can I buy you a drink <laughs> so he got me drinking and he, he 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 fed me and my brother at this place it was right off of like we were at JC Dobbs this one gig and uh, he pulled us down the street he like paid the guy off to let us sit down it was like one of these places, you know, the volcano, which specializes in like, you know, daiquiris or whatever. And um, we were sitting down. He's like, I'm going to introduce you to this guy I know. It's in New York. It's in Brooklyn. He writes children's books. I want to hire you. You're going to sing in front of the United Nations. And thanks for the water. Sure thing. Um, no problem. So he's like... Um, I'm gonna manage you, and uh, I'm gonna have you sing in front of the United Nations. So, um, 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 this Russian guy's like, you're, yeah, you're gonna write books. We're gonna write children's books, and we, you know, you're gonna be eighty percent, and your band, you're gonna be twenty. You, they, you give them twenty percent. You're gonna have to find a way to divide it with all of them. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Like, I think that me and the band produce the product, mm -hmm. and I couldn't do it without them. Right. And I think that sh everything should be divided equally. And they're like, you don't understand. You're paying stagehands. We got to pay people to put out the buck. And, blah, blah, blah. and so you're the man. And if, you need, if, your ba if your drummer doesn't like it, tell him to fuck off. If your bass player doesn't like it, he can be easily or easily replaced, and de you know, down the line. Yeah, right. And um, I'm like, okay, so I'm eighty percent, and it just it'll work out fairly in the end if I give them twenty percent. Okay, so I guess I got to go back and tell them about this, don't I? And they're like, yeah, yeah. So you know. I went back home, and I, I, I was like, yeah, I don't like keeping things a secret, so I want to tell you about this children's book. And then I, I told him, yeah, you get 20%, <laughs> but I'm 80% <clears throat> because I'm going to have to pay off the, the doorman and everybody else. I imagine they weren't too psyched to, to hear that. Not at all. Do, do you think that this person actually had any pull to make any of these things actually happen, or was he sort of... You know, he proved himself not to have the ability to do that. Right. As far as what I knew or what these guys knew mm -hmm. in the band thought about it, 
Yeah, they probably knew better. I, I'm pretty sure Ed Wilcox, he knew better, you know, because I think that experience, what I've learned over different periods of knowing him, where I'd say, yeah, you know, these people were telling me they really like my art. He's like, yeah, that's what they all say. Uh, when I first heard that during Hobby the Frog, I was like, what? <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? That's what they all say. But you know what? Um, that's actually pretty true. There are a lot of people who really don't appreciate the depth of what you're doing and will give you that, you know, so they can carry out their whole thing, mm -hmm. their whole macho, um, I show my girlfriend that I have really good taste. Yeah. It could be that. It could be that I just want to like, this guy does have talent and I could make money off of him. If only I could push him a certain way. If only, okay, he's got to be pushed more than a certain way. It kind of gets worse from there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In each and every instance. Yeah, these are not artistic people themselves. No. But, they, but they're sort of parasitic outgrowth of the artistic person where you know you perform and yeah. they get you know, yeah okay. and I don't get it because I'm not very streetwise and I'm so idealistic as you know idealistic means you open your world up to what God gives you when you perform it's not about your ego or anybody else's ego what they want you to be it's about that you you have your intellect, which is you have a sense of mathematics and what sounds in key and tone. You're trying to produce beautiful things, or I'm trying to produce beautiful things. Strange, but beautiful. And um, you have that, and you have your knowledge of, of visual art that you've seen that you liked, and you have your knowledge of musical art that you've seen and you've liked, or music that didn't consider itself art even, that maybe you found something artistic in. And you have all these ideas, and you try to, to um, make, make some of these ideas, um, utilize some of these ideas, and utilize some of your own ideas, and make sh shit happen. And a lot, a lot of the ideas, like I said, they come from God. If you're playing an instrument, if I'm playing um, a bass, or somebody's playing a bass, and they have an understanding of how jazz works, maybe it's going to come out different each and every time, and that's great. I, um, I think the way I was having on Hobby the Frog, I think where all the musicians were, were really grooving together, and then I was able to, to make some music with my voice, I was doing some textural things that a lot of people wouldn't know, they'd think it was coming out of a synthesizer, they'd hear all these weird sounds, and then the synthesizer would hear me, he started interacting with me, and a lot of that carried in a muscle factory, the same exact idea where I'd be singing and the synthesizer and me, we, we'd start getting all this stuff going. It was really interesting. Where the audience probably had no idea what they were hearing. Mm -hmm. And it got very... So I was able to get my musicality out with, well, with, with just being a lead singer, you know? Speaking, speaking of ideas that, that come from God, at this time you had many identity bands. Uh, and for those who may not be familiar with some of the identity bands that you were doing, could you just kind of briefly, you know, throw out some of the, the more prominent ones and then the ideas, the, you know, briefly the ideas behind these identity bands? Hmm. Well, I think it pretty much speaks for himself. I mean, we talked about Happy the Frog. 
Hoppy the Frog is children's music, or, or it's music from, you could say children's music, but then you're, you're going to create a, um, a contradiction if you were to say there's children's music done for adults. It was children-like music or idealism music, idealistic music. Yeah, you speak of like the sixties pop psych. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly. No, see. the music has that has Yeah, yeah, there's, the a, there's a child like fairy tale so, quality. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, this, you know. This hoppy, uh, what are some of the other uh, identity bands that you were doing uh, in, in this period? Muscle Factory. And what was the idea behind the Muscle Factory? This is probably your well. Other idea is that I was listening to the Swans when I was working out. I'm like, this seems like a pretty good idea, so I think I'll try it. And um, I would just play the Swans all the time in my little record player. This record player I had since I was five. I'd play it like, pretty loud and um, i lift weights to it. And I was like, this is cool. I think I'm going to... I like the Sonic Youth album, Bad Moon Rising, that there was like three songs on each side which blended, which each sounded different. And which were blended in with different like industrial sound effects and effects. I was thinking, oh, I could see they're doing what Red Crayola did in 1967 when they made Parable of Arable Land. Same idea, except Parable of Arable Land was more about the 60s. It was more about people making clanging sounds and abstract music and lots of <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, put with three songs on each side that sounded totally different. And um, Sonic Youth are, are working with tunings that they're it's they're trying to push the what sound an electric rock band could get from their instruments and taking what you know um, a band like Red Crayola was doing in 1967 same idea on doing music that might be called esoteric and and making songs out of them that were were long with stuff in between the song. So I made a, um, I made the Muscle Factory cassette. That must have been around 1991, um, where I had that little SK-1 sampler, and you know, I think the first song was like Pumped to Failure. It had a beat and a bass line. And the next song, I, I kind of got like a metal riff. I got that from Casket. Anyway, and then after that, I had a spoken word thing, and you could hear industrial sounds behind the spoken word thing. And as you heard the industrial sounds fade out, you would hear, hear another song come up. Looks like he's getting the door. Somebody's here. Pie the photographer. Yes. Mm. We can keep going. So, um,. Everything would proceed in this way, where, you know, you'd even have like a long spoken word thing, which I guess made it very different from the Sonic Youth or Rick Crowell's concept, was I would just have, I had like a really long spoken thing, which would last for maybe 10 minutes, and then afterwards you just hear like industrial sounds for like five minutes, and you could just take the spoken words and just kind of be working out to it. So we would do that as a band, my finally put a band together 
we would do the long smoking piece, and then I would work out, and the crowd would come work out, and that might go on for like a half hour. And you had guys on stage Just, working out while you were performing, right? Yeah, that that. Mm. And well, that's what I'm saying. They would be working out on stage, and people would be lining the steps of the stage, at least the Kyber, if you can picture, mm-hmm. and they would be going up and taking turns, and I would be spotting the people. <laughs> so you would have, instead of me laying down like, you know, four industrial sounds on a four track, my original tape from 1990, okay, you gotta figure out Muscle Factory band and start playing out to like 1995, 96. Um, so I would be reciting these long soliloquies, um, a lot of which was taken from a book that I had, which was the, um, what the, what the style mean to you, or something like that, where I guess at one part of the book this guy wanted a long dissertation between industrial visualism in pop, popular commercial art, and he was going into lifting weights and what that was, and I was taking lines from that, and I was adding my own lines. So it was like his and mine, his and mine. That's it, this is going on. That was the long spoken thing. And you hear, like I said, instead of hearing samplers and industrial sounds, you hear the band behind me just kind of making, I guess, what sounded like free jazz. And then they would, I'd get done, and they would go into something that was like kind of like repetitious, like Throbbing Gristle or The Swans. But the band themselves, like we were practicing this music in their bedroom while their kids were asleep. Mm-hmm. So they, they were these dudes from Hatboro who were really good musicians. And they were supposedly playing in a Tears for Fears cover band. That was what they were trying to do for the past 10 years. Now they were doing this. So I was writing some heavy metal stuff like like um, um, The Spotter. And stuff like that, and and bulk is beautiful. I was writing these heavy metal riffs. I guess influenced by the casket stuff I had done, you know. Bulk, beautiful. Bulk, beautiful. Out with the fat, in with the steel. So I had these dudes who were just like clean cut, regular guys who had families up there playing like death metal, but played it like. It was a volume that was like almost kind of maybe a little flabby, but it, you know. But, my, they, but they were committed to. They were this, totally this committed. Right? And then, how does audience? I mean, no one in the history of time have ever seen like people working out on stage and doing you know all the stuff that you're doing with this band. So how do people react to this? You know, this vision of you working out on stage as you're performing this. Well, music? I think in, I think in a, in a town like Philly, you're saying, oh, maybe Darren doesn't like Philly so much. I think... Um, I think you said that. You get caught in a... Um, when well, you're saying Darren had issues with Philly or something. Yeah, well, you said that you, said you hated Philly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I probably told you that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it's like, they put, it's like, okay, wrote that in 1990, formed a band to do it at the Avant-Garde Fest in Trenton. Just to do a performance of it, and all of a sudden it's like everybody in the city wants to see it. So they're, they're making you do this thing over and over again. It's like, okay, I wrote this in 1990. I got all this other concept tapes I already made, and I'm making a new one right now. And I'm stuck in this thing where it's like you're doing the same routine all the time. It's like 
and, and it takes people like certain musicians I, I know musicians slash CD producers of Motown music or soul music and Dave Brown drummer he was in 60s covered bands which pretended to be original bands oh like this the liars he's a drummer for him. I, I really enjoyed when he came up to me and he said yeah Darren you know it was good for the first couple times you know and my friend Jen Mee said yeah Darren you know I liked seeing Dyke it was good for the first couple times but you're being exploited you know you ought to keep doing new stuff I'm like I want to do new stuff I want to keep moving forward what were the other, some of the other identity bands that you were doing at that time um, I had written something for the Tantric Polyamory Workshop, and I, I put all this time into it. Oh my God, it was crazy. With this boombox cassette four-track with effects, I was layering all this stuff. I put some of the things out to the tape deck and have not coming in, and I'd have the boardwalk and, and um, the art party, little excerpts, I'd mix them in. And I was making this Tantric Polyamory Workshop, with, you know, I'd had these porn videos going through the mixer and I was mixing them in. You know, it was really, so I had, you know, two CDs full of this stuff. I'm like, okay, well, this is good. This guy just made a documentary about me. So now I have all this new music and it's ready to be edited with somebody who's a producer. And I was like, this idiot who made this documentary is trying to like, yeah, I think we should get Darren fixed up the, the guy who made produced Ween. We'll get Ween to produce him. I'm like, wait, I've been making tapes for the last 15, 20 years, like listening to a song a hundred times with her headphones and equalizing stuff and touching frequencies with my fingers. Like, I know a thing or two about production. Um, and um, I'd like to work with someone, like, you know, co-producer, and he had this like New Jersey gang behind me, ganging up on me, telling me I don't know anything, and I, I have to compromise sometime. You got to give in sometime. I'm like, what? You got to give in sometime. And I'd be like, look, man, I make music, and I like making. I like. I. I I'm. I can do lots of things. I like making the canvas. I like making the frame for it. I like saying what tones and colors I like for it. And everybody has a ball in my bands because they do whatever they want. And no. I, I, I'm like, you're not going to force musicians on me. Again, people trying to force musicians on me. And I'm like, the ones I'm playing with are good. They might need me to say, okay, maybe you need to turn your bass drum up. So, Because this guy was playing electronic drums and the bass drum was like a little, I always thought it sounded a little flat. And I would tell him sometimes, turn that thing up, put more bottom on it. And then you take some of that top off your ba your snare drum because it's digital. It was brand new digital, and and so it needed that. So I could have been like that, and I could have had a co-producer say, "Yeah, Darren, I think you're right. I think you're wrong." Mostly, produce people who produce. They love to talk to me because they love to talk to me about sound because they know I, I hear it. And so that wouldn't be no problem to let Darren do his own thing. Right. And well, let me interrupt you for just a second. Uh, I want to do the pictures so that Karen's not stuck here all night, and then. We'll go back and just finish up the interview right. after that. Is, that. is that cool with you? Okay. All right. We are back. Uh, we had a brief pause while we took some pictures. We need to, for time's sake, we need to begin to wrap up the interview. So I had a couple more questions. Uh, one of the things that I drew from uh, in 
you know, kind of preparing to interview you was this article that came out in Philadelphia Weekly in 2004. Uh, you were on the cover of the Weekly as Hoppy the Frog. Uh, the article is Bad Music for Bad People, which I'll have a link to. Which I think is actually a, quite, a, quite a good uh, article. But something I was curious about... Um, yeah, it's a very well-written article. It is. It really is, yeah. This was, this was certainly helpful. I read this when it originally came out then, and then I kind of pulled it up off the internet. You know, before you did a good job on it. That's uh, who wrote the article. Uh, he has a blog on... Oh, uh, Jonathan uh, John, Valenia. John Valenia, yeah, yeah Valenia, who wrote yeah. for the city paper. Well, that is a city paper. Mm-hmm. And now he's got the blog. The weekly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Valenia, uh, yeah, he did a great job with his article. Um, so what I was curious about was there was a documentary that was made about you that, that can be seen on YouTube in four parts. And uh, when I spoke to you on the phone, you seemed to have disavowed the documentary. You weren't very pleased with it. And I was curious... In the article, it says, uh, there's a uh, quote from the filmmaker, and it says, uh, I'll admit that my original intent was to exploit him, uh, confesses filmmaker uh, Brodzik. I thought he was just a freak show, and that a documentary about him would be like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, But the more I got to know him, I came to really like him as a person and respect his courage as an artist. So you, you know, being the, the fish in the barrel, the freak show, when you read this as the cover story to the Philadelphia Weekly, how do you react to that? And this person then that you've worked with to make this documentary. Now you're flipping the bird here, um, but what was your reaction at the time and how do you feel about it now? I think that um, actions speak louder than words. I think that um, if you like somebody's music and I consider myself a musician that's worth listening to, just the music, I mean, okay, you're going to reduce them. So people want to say when you sing to music, I say, when you sing to music, it's not music anymore. And so that's the one compromise I make with anything I do, whether it's playing a folk song on guitar, which I recently put up a bunch of videos on YouTube of me doing just that, to um, whatever, one of these bands like Muscle Factor or Hoppy the Frog, that... Um, A person needs to travel on a forward path, and each of these products are like albums. Like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band could be muscle factory, but good. But by next year, you're ready to move on, try a different thing, try... It's a, a, that's what musicians do. Um, and, well, whatever. Um, the idea that um, I'm singing for these bands is, like to me, the biggest compromise, because really... If I were to do something that was like true to my soul, I would just play music. There would be no singing. But when you sing, though, your lyrics are, you know, can be quite, can be quite strange dealing with, you know, sexual topics or, or, you know, other, other things that are outside of the norm. So there, there is some, certainly some emphasis on what you're saying and what you're expressing, especially when you're dealing with an identity band that, you know, seems to focus on a particular type of subject, you know, a musical... Uh, Lyrical subject. Yeah, it seems like all of them have a um, a line you could draw from, I guess, like somehow the stories and the um, songs and in the different styles where everything starts. This every every sound has its own kind of thing, that kind of thing, um, and that's that's I guess it. Where you, where you allow things to happen within these very general... And you get musicians together that you maybe hung out with and had a good time with. They could be local. 
They could be all sorts of people. I don't respect when, to get back to your original question about what did you think about that comment, but I respect his integrity as an artist and all this kind of stuff. It's like when you say, hey, look, man, I'm really excited. I met these really cool musicians from West Philly the other day. We got a long talk about music and we want to play together. So, like, if I put something out, yeah, I think I want to get these guys, like, we've played together a couple times and sound really good. I want to get these guys to play with me, you know? Me, whatever. Like, get out of my face. Just get out of my face. It's like, and then, you know, the dude's trying to tell me about if it, when Andy Warhol would create his art, sometimes he would do nothing and he would get everybody to put it in a frame and to paint things for him. I'm like, well, yeah, that's great. Maybe I not, might not like Andy Warhol that much. And maybe I do want to make my own frame, my own canvas. And maybe I do have an overall vision that's, you know, worthy. Certainly, like I said, I had much experience behind the headphones. And, um, would say I'd per probably be a pretty damn good co-producer. And a co means that you balance things off someone else. Yeah. Um, I'll put the light back And on. either they're... We don't, we don't need to get that intimate. Either um, light can go off. Uh, but for you, you know, as a performer, when you, you hear that someone, in effect, initially, is setting out to exploit you as a, you know, a freak show, fish in a barrel, how, how do you react to hearing something like that? I mean, how does it, what does it make you feel about this person, you know, that you had something of a relationship with in order to make I don't product? understand it because, to me, I'm so much in my own world that I always think that, my God, like, like if you serve somebody a Thai dish, of course they're going to like it more than a hamburger because it's more... There's more going on, right, yeah. and it's more tasteful, and it's more artful, and it's more interesting, and all that. And maybe there's some people out there who have the um, mentality that that's just not true. And um, I think when one from either side would try to exploit the other, when I think that the person who wants the hamburger and not the Thai food would like to exploit the person who want, want to make Thai food. Well, you see that on some of those restaurant shows today. You see the guys trying to change the restaurants. Like, you think your food's good. You think your food's good. And you, yeah, your, your family likes it, but nobody's coming into your restaurant. So you're not serving it the, you know, the right way. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I mean, I, I would like to serve things in a prop, in a, in a, in a way which... To me, it can only be defined in one way. It's like it, everything blends, there's harmony, the sounds are pleasing to the ear. If it's going to have words to it, which is my compromise, that the words have something, um, the words are good in some sort of way. Whether I'm singing songs from Muscle Factory or singing like um, those acoustic songs I put up on YouTube. Yeah, I guess we should probably kind of wind up with that. Are you playing with other musicians doing other bands now, or are you solely doing the, the, the folk songs, as you say, that you're putting up the YouTube songs with? Um, I was playing a lot with these guys from Manion. They're in this band called EDO. You ever hear of them? No. And they're in Manion? I mean, they're down the street Amazing. from me. Wow. This band is like around since like the 80s, and they, they, they make this... They have this guy, like Woody Allen, who sings for them. 
oh, he's gonna hate me for that. <laughs> and and and, and we're, they're like a funky band, and they have, they have like four or five CDs out, and they sound real good. Yeah, and it's really com- complex, like Zappa, Funkadelics, like Woody Allen singing. He tells these <laughs> stories. It's good. I mean, it's yeah. really good. Yanni was in that band. Oh, I, yeah, I saw yeah. Yanni yeah. play bass in that band oh, yeah, yeah. at the West Philly Underground, mm-hmm. and that's they were great back then. They had the song Bars Karloff. Yeah, and they used to get the well. They used to do all sorts of things with balloons and hats and funny hats. So you're but anyway, playing with them, um, jamming, going to these jam sessions. I've been to multiple jam sessions. We get to, got together in this little um, bar, um, a, a little tiny bar. I can't remember the name of it. it. Sounds like an Italian restaurant, but it's just a bar that hasn't been kept for like the last twenty years. And we got together multiple times there, and in Todd Young's house. Todd Young is a musician from there. He's also can play like Chopin on piano. Brilliant. All these brilliant people. And it was fun when we were getting, actually when we were getting together at Todd's house. It seemed like when we were having jams at the bar, you'd have a lot of people who would show up who weren't so good, weren't so so studied, as my friend Art Girl would say. But um, we would have these jams at Todd's throughout the 2000s, up till, till like 2010 or 2012. And um, they would be so magical because you get on this level with people. Everybody was playing loud enough, and everybody was like, you found a perfect group of musicians with like older heads. They, they knew how to like keep it. I think I think it was often a problem of getting together with younger musicians. You just turn out really loud, and it's like <sighs> we're talking about hardcore earlier, and to wind up this conversation. Um, what you see there is a complete removal of values from music whatsoever. You don't have, you don't need how to sing. Though you don't like need to particularly learn how to play your instrument all that well, and you don't need to be different or unique or artistic. And it's the same thing with rap. You know, you find those values missing, and. Um, I think that good art has to hold on to the things, the values that make them that make music music. If you want to listen to like free jazz, listen to the birds at night singing from the trees, and it's probably better than most free jazz bands. It's better than hardcore, even. It's better than rap, because at least when you listen to a bird rap, he's rapping in a way that you listen to it. And as a musician, as a trained musician, will fill you with endless permutations and ideas of how things can be syncopated and and, and beats can be breaking up. It's and and a lot of subtleties in the, the the pitches they hit. So they're very interesting. So it's like, what makes some guy a commodity? Because he's a rapper, or he's he's singing hardcore. What makes him a better commodity than these birds? Somebody should just go up to a bird. Put a mic up to it and record the bird and put an album out just called Bird. I can think of no better way of ending the interview, so why don't we uh, just leave it at that then? Oh, okay. All right. And thank you very much for All doing right. it, Darren. All right, thank you. Thanks.